Hey everyone, this is Jim coming to you again. Uh, I thought I would turn this on and start recording yet another podcast. Uh, let's see, what has happened since the last time? Oh, okay. First order of business. Uh, I've gotten the sense lately that some people are stumbling on this who don't know who I am. So I am Jim. I am a tech dude in the San Francisco Bay Area, more pointedly San Francisco. And uh, I had just started this in the in the whole shelter in place thing. Uh, so in the midst of all this, I'm just uh, recording these things, throwing them online. I don't, uh, I'm not a podcast guy. I don't, I'm not a journalist. I don't put these things together and arrange them. This is all very just off the cuff and ad lib. It's so something, it's definitely not just my personal journal. It's not like, here's what I ate today. Uh, but it's not structured in the way that I think most people would, uh, find appealing. And, uh, you know, nobody knows who I am. So, uh, Interest is likely limited. In any case, fair warning, don't expect anything much. Um, yeah, what is what is going on? Okay, so the biggest news, I guess, is that I have decided to move away from San Francisco for the rest of the duration of this shelter in place. Um, I've been interviewing for jobs, and everyone I talk to has basically just been, I mean, we're, they're, they're all tech companies, their employees are all working remotely. Um, it seems like that's pretty much going to be the way it's, it's going to be for the next several months. I would imagine for this, it's August now, I'd imagine at least for the next six months, like probably until next spring, I would guess offices are going to be closed. Uh, so I am going to move back to Detroit to spend some time with my parents and just hunker down with them for the winter. Uh, so I'll get, uh, I'm happy about that because I'll get to see them. I'll get to experience some of the seasons that they have in the Midwest, which I, you know, I, I kind of miss now that I'm in California. Uh, and go sledding. But, uh, yeah, so currently I, I gave my landlord notice today. I'm really trying to pack up and be out of here in, in a week or so. Um, I'm not working and there's no reason for me to, like, hang around. I've decided what I'm going to do, so. It's time to go. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of excited about this. I um, I went out today to get some boxes. I, I've heard that this is this is not something that's uncommon. I've heard this from many people. Like there is a mass exodus happening from San Francisco, since most people in San Francisco are are in tech. Um, at least the ones that have some mobility, uh, are, are are working in tech, and so they're working from wherever they're living. And people have kind of caught on. This is not going away anytime soon. Uh, I might as well just move um, somewhere cheaper. Like, I, like I, me moving back to like just live with my parents for six months. Um, like that's not the worst idea if I can swing that. That definitely reduces the overhead quite a bit, and you're not. Uh, you're not limited in the job opportunities that you have at the moment. Um, say for like the whole time zone difference. Some some companies would probably insist that you be in the Pacific time zone, but um, but yeah, I think this a lot of people have like are capitalizing on this. People who aren't stuck in leases, um, are thinking this makes sense. If you can stand your parents, why not? Uh, so that's kind of what I'm hoping for. I do hope to spend some time with my folks, particularly my dad. Um, but of course, if if, uh, if I manage to have a tech uh, 
like a Bay Area tech salary with zero rent uh, for, you know, the better part of a year. That's, um, that's nothing to complain about there either, but we'll see. Uh, I'm still, still interviewing around and it's possible I may not, uh, I don't know. The thing is I'm throwing most of what I own into a storage unit. I've got to arrange a moving company uh, uh, to come and pick up a bunch of my things and um, I'm going to throw them into a storage unit, probably somewhere, somewhere further inland where I can get something cheap. And uh, I plan to come back. You know, as soon as the office is open again, I'll, I'll just probably come right back to the Bay Area. Not quite sure where I land. Um, probably try and just move back into the city. But we'll see. Um, I kind of wonder how demand's going to be. Like, as soon as everything reopens, like if there's just like an all-clear signal that we get from the from the mayor of San Francisco or the governor of California or, you know, maybe something from the federal level. Hopefully Joe Biden just says, look, the experts say we're good. Everybody go back to work. You know, I kind of wonder if this will be a reverse thing right now. There's kind of the supposedly there's an exodus from San Francisco. I wonder if it'll be the opposite problem. Like there'll be a sudden incursion of people just this storming back into the city and like the rents will go up goes to the sudden spike in demand. It'll be impossible to find anything. So I wonder if I have to like plan to come back like a little bit early, just kind of like try and time it perfectly so that I get a place just before everything opens up. I don't know. Cross that bridge. We will see. I'm more than likely going to end up back here. I'm not sure I'm quite ready to leave San Francisco, but I am keeping an open mind. I'm, I probably will start looking for jobs elsewhere. Uh, the most interesting jobs are certainly here, like the ones that are most relevant would, would, I would learn the most from and have the most enjoyment doing the work. Those are going to be in the Bay area somewhere. Um, I've looked elsewhere. Like I looked at Colorado Springs, for example, it seems like everybody there is using, you know, not the languages I know, not the frameworks I know it's other stuff. And they seem to all be working for like the department of defense in some way. They're either contracting or involved with them directly somehow like it uh yeah just just one of those one of those towns that just sort of springs up around uh the dod entirely i'm not sure i could get down with that if i had a family to support i think i could but i mean i there's a lot of places i take it for granted now the fact that i can just like wear jeans and a t-shirt even if i don't um, but i never have to get dressed up I don't even have to do my hair. I don't have to shave. I don't have to be presentable in any way. Most of these Bay Area tech companies, I can just sort of get out of bed as long as I don't, as long as I don't have like a malodorous scent to me. Like I can pretty much be as disheveled and unkempt as I want. It's pretty nice. Like it, it would be weird to suddenly have to like be wearing khakis and like a collared shirt button down you know to have to go back to doing that that was my first job actually like four days a week the casual fridays that you could wear jeans you still had to like be business up top I remember that was the like the day i lived for oh it's friday i'm so excited because i can wear my can wear my jeans i don't have to throw on the khakis you know i've thought about uh when, when we do start going into the offices again, I'm thinking about not wearing jeans. 
Like, I don't know what I would wear, but I'd like to like go a couple of rungs on the ladder above this whole, I'm, you know, the, the typical software engineer just wears jeans and flip-flops. I don't wear flip-flops. I've never worn flip-flops and I, I never would. There's a certain minimum threshold I have for myself. Um, but I'd like to like dress above like what I'm doing. Like, I don't want to like wear a suit because I think that would be just too culturally jarring. But I, I would like to be, be somewhat more presentable than just, you know, I'm I'm a guy in like a running shirt and jeans and uh, a running sweatshirt. You know, like I'd like to I'd like to start advancing. Like I'm 38 now. When you're in your 20s, you're like, yeah, I just want to wear jeans. I just want to be a scrub all the time. Like, come on, why do I have to be presentable? I'm working in a cubicle all day and I talk to no one. Who cares? Now it's kind of like, yeah, I, I do talk to people in my in my job and I, I'm getting up there. You know, got some gray hairs coming in up top. I'd like to, you know, look a little bit more distinguished. Not look like I'm in a case of arrested development. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm in tech because I can't hack adult life. Like, no, I want to actually like look decent. Like I could go from work to a social event and it would be, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what the social event is. I could be dressed for it. I'd, I'd look my age. But we'll see. That's a ways off. I, uh, I, uh, I have a whole winter to figure out the whole GQ thing. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, so what I was saying earlier, I don't, I don't know if it's true that there's a lot of people moving out of San Francisco, but I would, I just went to Office Max to buy some banker's boxes to throw stuff into storage. And there was like two other couples buying boxes as well. And then I got back to my building and there was like, I passed a couple of people coming out from my car back to my unit in the parking structure who were also carrying packages of unfolded boxes. So it, it's, it, I don't know, that's very anecdotal, but it feels to me like people are, People are leaving. Um, I've also noticed like there's there's an apartment building across the street from me and I can just like. This is like if my te if my television is broken and I don't have the Internet goes out, like, this is my entertainment. I can sort of like just watch what's happening in the, <laughs> the units across the way. Um, not that I would I don't really do that, but um, it's very, very obvious that some of these units are just empty now. The building was pretty much full uh, at the beginning of this pandemic and there's the units sort of, I think like three or four of them have opened up and one of them has been, one of them has been claimed. I don't know if that's, that's also anecdotal. I don't know if it says anything, but yeah. Anyway, I went to Office Max and Office Max is over kind of on the north side of the Mission District. I guess if you're listening to this, you probably don't know San Francisco, but there, there are, there, there are major districts in their neighborhoods in San Francisco. And I live in Soma. And there's this kind of no man's land between Soma and the Mission District. Um, kind of just west of the design district of Trail Hill, if you happen to know San Francisco. It's like by the, where the highway is. There, There is just some desperate pockets of humanity out there right now. So I, I briefly... At the beginning of this year, got into San Francisco history and was studying it. And of course, uh, what really 
well, a lot of things stick out to me. San Francisco has a very colorful um, history, to say the absolute least. Uh, but when uh, when gold was discovered, when they um, came across that in the uh, at the mill, uh, I think in 1847. Uh, where was that? Starts with a C. Anyway, like yeah, it was. Um, once word of that got out, there was a sudden influx. Like right then, San, San, San Francisco as it existed then, like the little Yerba Buena community, as it was called, it was just this tiny little like outcropping of people um, along the coast. Um, you know, there was people up and down the coast, but this was just one more tiny, tiny settlement. There was maybe, uh, I don't know, 800 people here at most between Yerba Buena and the mission. I mean, Europeans, I think the, the Alona Indians were, were, there was a lot more of them, but there were not many people here. And, a, you know, a f several thousand people just descended on the city in a matter of, uh, you know, over a period of like several months, word of gold gets out and suddenly was like, okay, we got to get to San Francisco. And uh, you see pictures or paintings uh, of what it looked like. You read about what it was like. And uh, there's the Telegraph Hill, which is where Coit Tower is, um, kind of on the northwest quadrant of the city. I'm oh, sorry, northeast quadrant of the city. Um, there are just people living in tents because there wasn't a city here for people to move into. There were thousands of people just moved here with no infrastructure, there's no buildings, no government. There's, there's nothing to sustain all of this population. So they're basically just huddled um, on little patches of land. I can't imagine what the, the hell that would have been like. That would have been, that's really roughing it. I don't know how much gold it would take to convince me to, or, you know, the opportunity, like the prospect of gold. I don't know what probability I would need to be assured of that you'd get X amount of gold for me to be comfortable living like that. Uh, but this is a different time. Probably, I can't imagine people were leaving behind um, great lives wherever they came from to venture out west uh, to hopefully find gold. But yeah, if there was a lot of people that did it. It must have been a slog. But I, I mean, there's, the homeless problem in San Francisco gets a lot of ink these days. Like you do read about it a lot. Like there's a lot of drug use. There's, you know, human feces on the sidewalk. You'll encounter that if you just go for a jog in some less savory areas, even some savory places too. And you'll, you'll see needles just on the ground. It's, you know, this is definitely self-evident, but when I'm passing from Soma over to Mission, like I just did it the past couple of weeks, I went over to Office Max twice, um, but I take like a back way uh, that's kind of um, away from where normal traffic would flow. And uh, yeah, there there are there are just large swaths of of, of street where people are basically living in tents. 
and it's it's not even that like you they they just pitch a tent and they 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 sleep there and then they move on the next night they're not like vagrants they are they're people who've like set up an area like they've they've grabbed a piece of land and they've like set up like furniture like they 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 have like an area for the the bathroom you can see that they have like shelves set up like in some kind of haphazard way like things are organized around them living there long term like if you're going to try and arrange yourself to have an apartment you know in in a, in a tent on the street outside like that's what it's like and there there's it's not as many as you might think but there's more than there's more than i would expect and so it's kind of like this this is still going on and it's not even the the tend like the tenderloin if you're going to read about homelessness and drug use and all the, all the problems like you you typically hear about the tenderloin uh the tenderloin is not where you want to be right now uh there are just a lot of people on the street who are just inexplicably there I don't think most of them have homes. I would guess that a, a healthy proportion of them are not even aware that there's a virus going around right now. That like you would not want to be living in this neighborhood. I had I had a friend who was like she's looking for a place to live and she was look, considering a place in the tenderloin because it was in her price range. And I was like you don't want to be living in the tenderloin. not right now like you there was no way you could like step out to go buy groceries like the 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 sidewalks in that neighborhood are always just jam packed full of people just sort of like sitting there wandering around talking in groups none of them have masks on like it, it's just people in there don't even if they're aware of what's going on they might not even be able to afford masks they may not have access to that sort of thing like if if homelessness breaks out or sorry if coronavirus breaks out in, in the homeless population in San Francisco in a major way that's more than likely where it starts and you know i as long as i'm talking about this like San Francisco has done a very very good job like they've actually worked with hotels in the city and they they've taken a, a significant portion of the homeless population and put them up in hotels for the duration of this just so that they're not um just on the street I don't I don't know how many it's not a, maybe it's not it's not the majority but as many as they can that and uh the, the health workers uh which is great I mean this is what you need people need to be isolated and uh, people are not traveling right now so it seems like a pretty good use of hotels I kind of wonder who's turning down the beds I'm not sure I'd want to be a maid in that situation but that's a good time to possibly be homeless <laughs> yeah. You know what I would do if I were homeless? And I I guess I kind of hate conversations that start. I love that. Like people are saying like, "You know what I would do if I were homeless?" I got the secret. Like somebody who's never been homeless. I've never been homeless. How the hell would I know what the hell? How would I know anything? Where do I get off saying like, "Here, here I'm going to tell them what to do." I have no clue. But I think I think what I would do is I'd get one of those orange yellow bright neon vests like city workers have. I'd somehow get my hands on one of those. And I think if you if you have one of those, you can pretty much just loiter wherever you want. I don't think anyone's going to question it. 
Like it doesn't matter how scraggly you look, how dirty your clothes are. People just look at you and be like, oh, yeah, they work for the city. Like nothing of it. I think you could get away just like wandering around almost anywhere uh, with that. And of course, I've said it before, but if I were homeless, if it's like, okay, I have to live on the street somewhere, uh, I would probably make my way to Santa Barbara. Because, damn, uh, that is a fine, fine city. Even if you're living on the street, it is beautiful. Um, yeah. Yeah, if I'm ever homeless, I'm hitching a ride there as soon as I can. Uh, yeah. You know, another thing I was wondering, okay, there's a whole lot of skepticism going around right now, which you will see uh, online. Ah, hold on, I'm getting a text, and I think this might be time-sensitive. Be right back. Okay, I'm back. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently in the process of selling a lot of my things online, so it Somebody shows up, uh, texts me. I am outside. I gotta, I gotta grab that. So, um, that was, that was actually, I just got rid of some dirt. I had a couple bags of, uh, potting soil. And, uh, I, I, I apparently there's something, some weird psychology when you post something that's free. Cause I, I posted a few things on Nextdoor that I, I'm gonna try and sell before I choose to just throw them out. Um, but I had, I had a couple bags of potting soil. Uh, that an ex of mine had bought and I've just been kind of sitting out on the patio for the last year or so. And, uh, yeah, I just, I posted them like about, like sometime yesterday evenings, about 12 hours ago, I just posted them and said, Hey, got a couple bags of dirt. They're free. If you can come pick them up. And I haven't heard any other inquiries about anything else. Um, but I got like, maybe 50 or 60 pings about the free dirt. Like just instantly they started rolling in. I had no sooner posted than uh, people were just like, when can I come pick it up? What's your address? You know, I'm interested, you know, um, kind of like, I, okay, I don't even know what to do with this. Like um, if you're interested, okay, who are you? When can you come by? Give me a little more context. But people were pinging me from like, so I'm in San Francisco. People are pinging me from like San Jose, from Sonoma County, uh, from like over in the East Bay, like somebody in, I think, Pleasanton. It's like, this is like, if you're going to come over, this is like a two hour drive, like each way to get to me, um, over a bridge. You have to pay a toll just for like two bags of dirt. Like, do people, I, I guess the, the economics of that, like, if like I understand free is, free is only, like, so free. Like, sometimes the, the cost, time, and, and other things, like getting something, it it's not worth it. I guess people just don't think like that or something. I, maybe, maybe just people really want dirt. Maybe there's a dirt shortage. I, mean, I could have charged for that. And I don't know. Anyway, dirt's gone, and that's uh, that's all I care about. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Should probably take the listing down. Stop the inbox from getting any more cluttered. Anyway, yeah, the dirt is uh, 
Dirt is gone. Okay, where? what the hell was I talking about? Oh, yes. So I was wondering. There's a lot of skepticism floating around about the virus. I've had more than one person tell me that this is all just a media hoax. You know, this assures me like, hey, you know, we don't have to worry about the virus. It's not going to kill you. What's going to kill us is government tyranny. They're making it all up to keep us impotent and weak. Um, I don't traditionally some some like conspiracy theory like that was like far left. I don't know what side of the spectrum that falls on anymore. It's just people are just crazy everywhere. I feel like. Um, anyway, but I I do wonder like I can, I can see the basis for the skepticism because there's a lack of like immediately available evidence, you know like. We are relying on the TV. The TV feeds the information. It says, hey, there's a virus. It's roughly this deadly. But unless you're like, unless you know somebody who's died from it, or you're like in the hospitals seeing how bad things are, I don't think, I don't think we don't have like a tangible sense directly of it. It's not empirical. So I can see, I can see the skepticism. I can see why it's there. But I'm just kind of curious, like how bad would things have to get before there would be almost no skepticism? Because apparently this was this was this happened in apparently 1918, the last flu pandemic. Uh, there was a little segment on the Daily Show where they did like a uh, comparison between the two eras. There was the same thing. The president was downplaying the issue. You know, people were like skeptical of that, that it was even going on. They were skeptical about its lethality. Skeptical about like how efficient masks were. It was like, I'm not going to wear masks because it's an infringement of my constitutional rights. All this, it was all the same a hundred years ago, which is actually very reassuring to me because although it means people are going to die unnecessarily again, like they did a hundred years ago, it also means we're probably going to survive again. Again, history is, um, history teaches us that we really have no reason to be vain. This has all happened before. But like, how how bad would it have to get? Like, how bad? Like, how lethal would the virus have to be before there's almost no skepticism left? You consider something like Ebola, and I, you know, Ebola is a really nasty, nasty virus. I think it's 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 the rate of people that it kills is somewhere in the 90, 90 percentile. Yeah, the mortality rate's very very high. And it's not a pleasant death either. If, if somehow there was an Ebola outbreak that became very, very widespread in the United States, um, there would just be people dead in the streets. There'd be like blood flowing out of them. It would be a messy situation. Now, I'm curious, like, is that what it would take? Like, obviously, in that extreme, uh, in that case, if there's just dead bodies lying around and they're oozing blood, um, and people are just too scared to go outside and even like pick them up. Um, if if it was something that bad, of course, of course, people would no nobody's going to be sitting there saying like, "Oh, I'm not wearing a mask." Cause it, people would be like getting hazmat suits and like wearing those. Like there would there would be nobody questioning that. Nobody would be going anywhere or doing anything uh, involving contact with the outside world without some severe decontamination measures. By the way, getting a hazmat suit is probably not a bad idea. 
if there's ever an outbreak of Ebola or something like that, there's going to be a rush on hazmat suits. We're going to realize, oh yeah, in terms of PPE, that's what we need and nobody has them. They're all in China. Now would be a good time to get one of those things and just have it around. Let's learn our lesson. Yeah, kind of tempted to just put one of those in my cart right now. Let it sit there. Eventually, it'll get shipped to me wherever I end up back in Michigan. But, I mean, of course, in that case, Ebola is like the extreme. Um, but what would, what, like, somewhere between that on this gradient of, like, you know, coronavirus is not extreme enough for everyone to take it seriously. Ebola pretty much gets universal terror issued to everyone. It instills it in, in, in all people. Like, where's the middle ground there? Like, at what point do you have enough people uh, that are paranoid, that believe it? Like, what, what would people have to see to be convinced? I don't I don't know if there's an answer to this question, but it's just uh, one of those rhetorical things. Um, God, I've got a looking around my place so most of most of my stuff that i own i've um kind of pulled it out of where it was stored and it's now just sitting out in the open i'm just kind of walking around amongst it i've got my own little maze set up i have a lot of stuff man like i i arrived here in the bay area four years ago with nothing that couldn't fit into my car like it all had to fit in I was basically just driving around California with everything I owned and that all fit into my, you know, um, Hyundai Sonata, you know, reasonable sized four door sedan, but not, uh, not, not that big. I really didn't have that much. And I'm looking at like four years of like growth here. Like I, I've done very little trimming of the hedges in the meantime. I've, I've kind of started selling books lately. But there's, it's very, very bushy right now. I, mean, I definitely need to trim some fat here. Um, yeah, I feel like that's a common. It's amazing how quickly you accumulate stuff. Yeah, it is. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why it's so hard to get rid of. Uh, yeah, I've got so much that I don't need too. Looking through like the computer boxes, I've got like cords for devices that I don't think I have anymore. I have devices that I don't need that I don't even have cords for anymore. Like this, ah, gotta figure out. You're supposed to recycle electronics, right? Like I have an old iPhone. I don't even know what you're supposed to do with these things. Yeah, like there's so much I've accumulated that I don't get rid of. Like if I can't throw it out for green reasons, like environmental reasons, I just like, I'm holding on to it then. I don't want it to leak acid in a, in a landfill. I'll just wait till it leaks acid, like on my bookshelf somewhere, I guess. I don't, <laughs> don't quite know the logic. Uh, it's going through my head. Um, yeah, but it is a damn beautiful day out. Um, but yeah, I actually thought about, I thought about taking some pictures, like going out. I, I probably, I probably would have considered doing this 
like a few months ago if I'd thought of it. But like, what is actually happening on the streets of San Francisco during uh, the pandemic? There's a bunch of like homeless encampments now. Like there are there are people in certain neighborhoods that are just you know, you'll always find tents or you know vagrants just sort of wandering around. Uh, there's still people, not very many, but some people going to the beach. Some people still like they're just they're living normal lives, you know. Um, not a lot. I don't, it's not like Los Angeles, from what I can gather. Um. Yeah, but I'm, I happen to live in like a very popular, dense urban area in the middle of all this. And I, I, it, I've got, I, if I'd thought of it, I probably would have like gotten a camera and gone around and started just taking pictures. Like as much as I've wandered around the city um, in the last uh, four or five months, um, I probably could have put together a nice little compilation of city photos. Here, here's what, here was San Francisco during the historic 2020 uh, coronavirus uh, flu. There's got to be a lot of people doing that, though. I'd kind of like to try doing something. Like, that's the thing. That's what's so dispiriting about, like, the ideas that I have. I'm like, somebody's got to be doing that already. I mean... Technology is so accessible to everyone. It's like everyone's a photographer. Everyone is a writer. And the most obvious niches are like, uh, you know, already claimed. Although I did think about, yeah, I completely forgot about this. This was an idea I had uh, possibly while drunk. Like, I think it was a night when I was drinking. I think I forgot about it, but... uh, just to do nature photography because right now whatever like botanicals that grow in the city but kind of wildly not not cultivated those are going to flourish because I, I assume that those are not going to be maintained there's nobody going around picking those up or, or trimming them or plucking them and just like uh documenting you know urban urban plant growth I don't know. Now that I say that, I don't know if I could have really gotten into that. I don't know how visually striking that would have, would have been. I got to say, though, Instagram has sort of opened my... I, I'm not a heavy user of it, and I've only been using it for maybe, uh, like, really routinely uh, since the beginning of this year. But I noticed the filters you can put on things, and I realized, like, oh, okay, if if you take, like, a photo and it's well-framed, and it's it's interesting subject. Like filters could really touch that up. Like I I kind of thought filters for photography were just for like astral photography. Like you trying to take a picture of a, a nebula out in space. Um, if you're doing that, you need all kinds of specialized lenses and filters. Um, especially there's some things you can't even capture unless you have the right kind of filters. That's just that is a crazy art unto itself. But just, just regular photography. Um, filters seem to get you a lot of the way there. Like, it's it's pretty cool that we have this app. You can just take photos and, you know, t- 
tint them a certain way. And they really look much better than just the no filter. I realize I'm probably very uh, late to this game. I think people have been using filters on Instagram for like how many years now? Like a decade? I'm slow to adopt new stuff. I'm kind of like, I heard it. I've heard of Instagram whenever it came out, whenever Facebook acquired them. You know, I heard of them before that. But I was like, you know, let's just see how it goes. I'll wait. Like I said, I'm pretty sure that's a flash in the pan. Um, and it wasn't, actually. Like, it's, uh, it seems like most of the social media that's come out has either been, it's gone away quickly, but if it's, if it's acquired by one of the big players, then it's, uh, it has some staying power, seems like. God, I have a lot of books. Oh, and anyway, in any case, I think I can make this one close. For some reason, I feel the need to like drone on and on for like, you know, 90 minutes, at least an hour. The podcasts that I tend to listen to are very, very long. And I think I've just gotten into the rhythm. Like that's, that's sort of the feel I have for it. Like I have to talk at great, great length without stopping. Cause that's just what I'm used to. But I'm listening to like public figures and celebrities that I'm interested in hearing talk, uh, like public intellectuals. Um, it's a little bit different if you're, if you're just me. Um, and again, I, I, I reasonably sure nobody's listening to this so i don't know why i'm talking as though i have an audience that i have to be mindful of i'm assuming success thinking optimistically you gotta act successful in order to be successful isn't that what they say the business the strategy advice whether you think you can or you can't you're usually right I kind of wonder what self-help will look like in a hundred years from now. I wonder if self-help will even be a thing. Will that even still be what it's called? I can't imagine it will change that much. Like the mainstays of, of, of um, self-help are pretty old now. Like there's Napoleon Hill. His Law of Success came out in 1925. I think that was uh, a... Century ago, how to win friends and influence people, same thing. I feel like most of the advice I hear is just uh, like the most more more modern self-help gurus. They're just uh, kind of regurgitating that roughly that same advice, just with different examples and using different words. Like Tony Robbins, for example, I've listened to some of his stuff. I love listening to that guy just because he, you know, he brings an energy to things. Um, that I really like, you know, I love listening to somebody with enthusiasm gets jacks themselves up somehow in the morning. They just, they carry that through the rest of the day. I'm a little bit more, uh, you know, buttoned down, you know, low energy is sort of, eh, I'm going to focus all my energy inward. But, uh, I mean, stuff Tony Robbins says, like the, the pieces of advice that he offers when he like stops being anecdotal. And like makes a statement, you're like, okay, that was very, that was a very good piece of advice in one sentence. Usually, it's something you can tie back to like Napoleon Hill, uh, which I'm not saying he's uh, appropriating. Uh, I'm not saying he's just ripping Napoleon Hill off. 
I'm, I'm sure that he's not. I'm just saying that good advice is timeless. So as a way of answering my own question, if self-help is still a genre 100 years from now, um, it's probably just going to be the same thing. I think that's really what you, you'd have to do as any kind of writer, really. Um, and I'll, actually, this is a good place to mention that a correction from last time. Last time I was talking about the natural numbers, like one, two, three, and so on, things you would use, whole numbers you use to count that are positive. So to, to number quantities of a thing, you'd use the natural numbers. <clears throat> and I was talking about how uh, Carl Jung um, regarded the numbers as being something something more than just uh, human beings. Yeah, the way I phrased it was incorrect. He believed that they were... Um, there's there's an inclination on the part of human beings psychologically deep down, deeply instilled in us to make order out of chaos. And that natural numbers were just a, a human invention uh, that allows us to do that. So down in our psyche, there's this compulsion to order, inclination to order. And like numbers are a conscious manifestation of that. So the way I put it is that the, the natural numbers were just made up. They're, they're a creation of human beings. Um, that's what I said last time. Jung didn't actually believe that. What he said um, was slightly different. He, he said roughly all that, but he thought that the natural numbers were actually not so much invented by human beings as they were revealed by human beings, like they were discovered by human beings, the way you might go out and unearth dinosaur bones. Um, like the numbers came from somewhere deep in the mind. They were there. They're just a property of the universe. Um, they do represent an archetype of order, which is interesting. I don't know if I, I buy that. I don't know. I, both what I misstated last time and what I'm stating the correction now, I don't know. I don't know actually what I, what I believe. But drawing it back to what I was talking about before, I feel like really, really good writers uh, do not create so much as they do reveal. It's like I, one of my favorite self-help guys that I used to listen to a lot was Zig Ziglar. And he would make points in his lectures and he would say, now, isn't that obvious? Why am I telling you this if it's so obvious? Why are you paying, I don't know how much people paid to see Zig speak. Why are you paying that much to hear me state something which is, you know, it's advice you could find in parables in the Bible. And he's like, well, you know, people forget that what happens, you know, like the advice that we read, that it, it pertains to their situation, unless it's made relevant, you know, to them by somebody who's uh, one of their contemporaries. There's a, uh, there's a book Richard Feynman wrote about the, the relationship between science and religion. And he starts off by saying, like, what I'm about to write here has been written before. You know, there's nothing I'm going to say in this book or in this series of lectures that's going to, uh, it's anything new. Like, all this has been said. It was said, like, thousands of years ago in Greece. And he's like, so you may wonder why the hell I'm choosing to repeat them. He's like, well, because new generations are born every day. And unless these ideas are, are explicitly and purposefully um restated and passed along, they get lost. 
So, I mean, a really good writer is something of a relay. They just sort of reveal what is already known in a way that uh, is accessible to the latest generations. Um, and that's why I, I, I actually don't care. I know I hedged against it saying like, I don't think Tony Robbins ripped off Napoleon Hill. I would not lose any respect for Tony Robbins if I learned that he ripped off Napoleon Hill. That's, a, that's actually a really good strategy. Good artists borrow, great artists steal. And it's attributed to Picasso. Some truth in that. Like there's a timelessness to art that manages to stand the test of time. Um, there's a reason that stuff needs to be preserved. So, I mean, to the extent that I've thought about being a writer, I've stopped, I've stopped looking for what is it that I need to discover that no one else has discovered before. Like that conceit died in me a long time ago. I was like, I'm not that dude. I'm not the smart guy who's going to conceive of something that's completely unknown, you know, a new idea that no philosopher has ever thought of. You know, a lot of the philosophy I wrote when I was in college, I later learned like, yeah, the people had been talking about that for, you know, that, that came up with the Greeks. I really wish I'd spent my, my, my formative years when I was much younger learning about all those old ideas, about actually appreciating them, not just dismissing them as, well, they can't possibly be relevant today because the world has changed so much. And what's happening in the world now is so unique. You know, it couldn't possibly be relevant. Like, I wish I had just built the foundation, like gotten to the point where, okay, I understand the lineage. I understand where we are, the genealogy of ideas. And once you get to the present, that's what you're supposed to build on. You know, just do it from scratch. Which is, you know, an effort. I'm trying to do that now. But the problem is when you're young, you end up forming habits in the mind. And there's still an inclination in me. There's still some conceit that says like, yeah, you know, I should be thinking of some new stuff. There's some new shit out there I can reveal, uh, you know, that I can discover and find and show to the world that nobody's ever heard of before. You know, I have to like catch myself and say, no, no, if you set out to do that, you're, you're likely to fail. Unless that's certainly not impossible, but it, it means you have to like, you have to achieve some sort of mastery of a particular domain or set of domains of, of knowledge. That's at least a prerequisite. You can't, uh, you can't just come up with something novel and new that's going to be relevant to the world without understanding, you know, the antecedents of the predecessors. One thing I've been doing is reading the Psalms, actually. And I like this. I've, I've, I've always done this. Like the Psalms have been something that I've always focused on. Like back when I was like attempting to be a, a, a Christian of some kind, when I was trying to practice all of that. Um, the Psalms are something I focused on very heavily. I certainly don't understand them. Uh, yeah, I... I like I, I don't um, don't quite take their meaning. It's not something that I really understand intellectually. Um, but I kind of I did that because I wanted to. For me, it was kind of like okay, well, this was the prayer book 
that Jesus used. So if you're going to try and like be some kind of Christian, like to the extent that Jesus was doing anything, he was living by Hebrew scriptures. And the Psalms are not, uh, they're both what a, what a religious person would say is God's word and they are prayers. So you can, you can both read them as, you know, God's word and you can read them to God. Um, which is interesting. I mean, there's, I, I don't know of anything else in major religious scripture that is anything like that. You know, there is the, um, the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament. Um, but the Psalms seem to stand alone and they also tend to be, they're, they're also extremely old. And I think that if you're going to, like, if we're going to say, okay, if you are an atheist, for example, and you say that Christianity is outmoded, like, if we're going to keep being religious, we need to at least establish a new religion and get rid of the, get rid of, like, the literalness of the Bible, um, overturn some parts of it because it's outmoded in some way. If you're going to claim that, uh, then I don't think you can just, I don't think it's possible for, for human beings en masse to simply throw that all away and start from scratch. Like you basically say, okay, we're going to get rid of Greek mythology, get rid of uh, Christianity, get rid of Judaism, and we're just going to say, okay, let's invent a religion now. First of all, I don't think religions proceed from conscious thought that way. Um, but I mean, second of all, like religions always seem to crop up from their antecedents. So you mean you have Hinduism in India, and that's where Buddhism comes from. Like the Buddha was originally trying to practice Hinduism, and he was asking his guru or whatever, like, have you ever actually tried putting this crap into, into practice in your own life? Do you know if the stuff that you're teaching me works? And the guru told the Buddha, like, no, I, I don't. I don't know. I've never done that. And the Buddha was like, well, how do you, how do you know it works? So, I mean, he, he even started off there. He started off with their spiritual traditions and, and advanced them uh, in his own way. Probably the biggest contribution he made was to uh, introduce the self into the pantheon of gods. Um, so Hind Hinduism has a bunch of, it's a polytheism. But uh, really, the, the individual self doesn't take center stage um, at any point in those stories. Uh, Buddha reintroduced that. He said, okay, what's well, Kind of like Hinduism, there still are forces out there, but you are the center of it. Uh, much in the way that um, Jesus did the same thing. Like uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that the Jews before for him were very collectivist. Like we're a part of a culture. You know, we are God's chosen people. Jesus is more like we are God's, each, each of us are children of God. We're each a child of God. Like the very hairs of your head are numbered. He introduces the notion of self into what is originally just a collectivist mentality. And the thing is, Jesus couldn't have, Jesus couldn't have been just some guy. Like he, he like, it only worked because he was Jewish. Or maybe it would have worked if he had been Greek, you know, um, like if he had, he had said, like, you know, I'm the son of Zeus, 
or whatever, and he'd been going around preaching about um, Hermes and Heracles and, you know, Apollo and all that. Uh, if he'd done that, then, you know, th then it would be based in Greek myth. The fastest growing religion in the United States is Mormonism. That is not something that just arose in a vacuum. Like somebody said, hey, let's invent God. No, that, that draws upon what came before. Same thing with Islam. It's a uh, monotheism that kind of uh, at least acknowledges that it, um, some of its predecessors are, you know, the other monotheisms, it acknowledges Judaism and Christianity. Even if it doesn't, even if, uh, you know, even if the, the scripture doesn't say that they should be treated as equals um, under the law, uh, under Sharia. These things don't arise in a vacuum. These things aren't just created. So it doesn't just say, oh, I've got this idea. Let's make it happen. You know, that's what L. Ron Hubbard did. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think most of the major religions that stand the test of time, I don't think they're anything like that. Um, okay, what, where, where am I going with this? Uh, I'm just kind of stalling now at this point. I'm like talking about whatever because, uh, yeah, gotta, I gotta start putting together these boxes. Um, but yeah, I read the Psalms. Um, because they are some of the oldest stuff that we have. Like if you're going to, if you're going to seek to have some sort of spiritual experience, you have to go back to the roots. And I think that, uh, we occupy Western civilization. Our dominant thing here is, uh, Christianity. So, I mean, Judaism is at the root of it. Um, and the Psalms are what uh, people use to speak to God. So I have read that people who read the Psalms, even if they're not religious, just reading the words, just consuming the language brings about a sense of peace when nothing else will. And so I've been reading them for that reason. I've been opening them up and reading them here and there, bits and pieces, not because I believe that what I'm reading is true or that I'm, that I'm praying to somebody who is listening. I wouldn't claim that, uh, at least not publicly. But it does seem to have an effect on me that I, I haven't found can be replicated using anything else. I do have like other scriptures, like uh, Buddhist scriptures, like the Dhammapada. Um, and it's, it's, it's honestly just not the same. Nothing else I've been able to find has been, been the same. Even stuff that I think is very, very well written, like passages in Les Miserables, I can just open that up and read them. Very, very beautiful prose. Victor Hugo is an awesome writer, or something like Dostoevsky. Very, very good writing. It does have an impact on you, but it's not like this. Um, I don't know how you, how you describe it. It just seems like there's a there's a kind of peace that washes over you. There's a peace that washes over me anyway when I when I read the Psalms. I don't know what that is. And I can I can understand why people would read that and they would say this is having a certain psychological impact on me. I think that that is evidence that it comes from somewhere divine. That it has a metaphysical origin. I, I do get that. I understand why people feel that way. 
I understand the feelings that might proceed from reading scripture that make people believe that must be true. That was the reason I, like, I, I barely know. I don't, I don't know the, even know the alphabet anymore, but I tried like learning Hebrew, like at least knowing the characters and being able to pronounce it out loud. Um, because I wanted to believe that like processing it that way. First of all, that was the way Jesus was reading it. He was reading the Hebrew. So I was like, I want to be able to, to do that too. Like kind of walk in his shoes, so to speak. I'm less interested in that now, but I'm interested in it for the psychological reasons. Like if you're going to try and get back to the original source, uh, then getting back to the original language in which it was expressed, that must be all the more impactful is my hypothesis. I don't know if that's true. Like if I have some time this winter, I'll probably try and do that. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to it, learn how to pronounce those things and learn the alphabet and learn some words and uh, see if I have time. I might be, I might be working at some new job where I'll have no time to do anything, but we'll see. Anyway, it is time for me to start cranking and packing up my stuff. So I'm gonna leave it, uh, I'm gonna leave it alone for now. Yeah, wherever you are, I hope you're, you're doing well. And uh, until next time, this is Jim signing off. Take care of yourself. Cheers.